Welcome to the Free Range Preacher on Prayer Podcast. Hi, it's Richard here, your faithful announcer. We are so glad you are listening. Casting our podcast on the waters of providence, trusting we encourage growing, biblical, dynamic, soul-satisfying prayer lives which glorify God. From the pen of Martin Lloyd-Jones, prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. John Owen adds, I pray God with all my heart that I may be weary of everything else but converse and communion with him. J.C. Riley adds his insight. Never, never may we forget that if we would do good to the world, our first duty is to pray. And now to our fine host, Fred. Welcome to the Free Range Preacher on Prayer Podcast. My name is Fred. And as always, I am the podcast principal. And I'm really excited about today to be talking about prayer, not only just to be talking about prayer, but because God is doing some marvelous things in my life and doing some things that have been prayed for, but unexpected in a while, for a while. It's not, though, something, however, that we are going to talk about today. But what we are going to talk about today, a continuation of my testimony on the early lessons of prayer is exciting as well. So it's just a great day and it's a great day to be here and it's a great day in God's mercy to be able to be the principal of the podcast. And I prayed as we began today that you are seeking the Lord's face and that you are well. Anyone and everyone who listens and even down through the ages, that prayer indeed will count. And we have been, as you know, redeemed from our sin and given a new inner man. We talk about that a lot. And we have been redeemed and given that new inner man for, expressly for, our fellowship with our Creator. Our relationship with Him is of the nature, of course, that He is our Creator. And what we know about Him, we only know as He is able to reveal Himself to us because there's no other way we would know him at all if he didn't reveal himself. And as the Bible puts it, any more than a piece of crockery would know the potter who made it. That's the vast difference between us and God. And that's sometimes, well, it's always hard to fathom and sometimes hard to accept, because we have that echo of his nature, and there's a majesty not in us but in him that echoes from our creation. But we do need to come to that realization that he is higher than than we are. And unless he condescended to teach us about himself, we wouldn't know. We would be blind to him. And in regards to all that, when I was in the midst of my depression, in the worst season of depression that I had, I would listen to a variety of talk radio shows. And many times as I listened to the people talking, expressing themselves, I would wonder in my own sorrow, as a Christian, what do I have to offer these broken, hardened sinners? There are broken sinners and hardened sinners, and we do have a message for the nations. But as I was sad, sometimes more sad than they were, 
So sad, in fact, that I barely made it from one day to the next. I was very similar to them, and I asked myself over and over again, what do I have as a Christian that I can give them, that I can express to them? What's the difference between Christians and non-Christians in our sorrow? In our last episode, part one of Personal Powerful Prayer Lessons, that's going to be the name of this series, we began to answer that question, and we saw God answering my prayer, my desperate prayer, miraculously and precisely. And in our theme throughout the last four years, or for most of the last four years of the podcast, we have talked about our relationship with Jesus, with God, and the nature of it is our knowing him, our getting to know him. And of course, prayer is that conversation or part of that conversation with him. But we saw last time, and we will reinforce this later, God, like I said, his miraculous and precise answer are the same things we are witness to in the Bible. And sometimes we don't think about that. And sometimes, as Christians, we think he's not working the same. And then to further answer that question from my despair, in the big picture, of course, uh, we are looking at in the next five episodes how that relationship gives us what we need and what we really long for in our new inner man and what the world does not does not have at all, which begins with a new inner man. The world doesn't have a new inner man. Our relationship with our Creator is real, and it's dynamic. We've talked about it. It's real, growing, dynamic, and sincere. Now, we last we saw the last time in the particular struggle I was having how God drove me to prayer through all those circumstances. Then we saw his glorious answer, and he taught me his glory. He showed me his glory and his wisdom in the the exact manner that he answered that prayer. In this case, again, even though I had little faith how he would answer and no idea how he would answer, he answered exactly what I was praying for. Today, we are going to look at five lessons, four of them, or not today, but beginning today, we are going to look at five more lessons, four of them from the year 1984. And I was still an infant in my connection, in my relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And indeed, in my ignorance, God was giving me a foreshadowing of a more precise knowledge of him. Thank you, Jesus. He was teaching me things that wouldn't become fully formed until many years later, but this was the first step in 1984. And it was also the saddest but most revealing year about who God was and how he worked in my whole life. It was pivotal, and even though those lessons didn't fully come back to roost for many years, they did come back to roost in my growing relationship with Jesus. Now, the year was split generally speaking, into four equal time periods. And I titled them right in the year of 1984, at the end of the year of 1984. But I titled them in those four sections. The first is the fight. And God taught me how to fight. And he taught me that his way, his way of fighting an enemy is paramount. All the while, he was answering my prayers. So it was the fight was the first section. The next is the fall. And God showed me how many things he was working on and people he was working on at the same time 
while again answering my deepest prayer, my deepest desire, which was to go back to Phoenix and finish my schooling. And he did all that in the few months that I called the fall. And then the flight. So I was able to leave L.A., as we'll hear in a minute. That's where I was. And in that, he showed me his provision in not only leading me back to school or the impetus of it, the power of being able to move back to the school where I started, but he also laid the groundwork for the salvation of my dad and the comforting of my heart that I still cling to to this day. That's 1984. This is 2023. Uh, According to my math, that's about 100 years or maybe 40 since then. And it's still a powerful signpost in my life to that relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the last few months of 1984, I titled The Funeral. And in it, I saw God's perfect plan and providence for the worst short season of my life, and maybe ever will be of my life. We'll see. I have a few years left. And those headings will comprise the next four episodes. And then we will do one more on uh, the deepest extended time of trial in my life. Well, maybe the most impactive season of my life. For today, though, we are going to look at the fight and how God taught me to truly fight my enemies. Even our enemies, even we might say his enemies, But his way of fighting, as you probably already know, is different than ours. So we're going to begin with the circumstance. Now, it was, I was 27 years old at the time, or turned 27 during this year, and I was working in a production bakery in Los Angeles, a big bakery. And I was pretty young, 27 is pretty young. I was very new with the company, but I had done enough over a short period of time to be given a supervisory role at the bakery. Now, I was put in charge of two lines of making donuts, as a matter of fact, but there were two lines, one that made the little donuts and one that made the bigger donuts of all the different varieties. And I'd never worked with either group of before. And it turns out one group was very sweet, the production line that made the little batteries, the, the little donuts, And the other line was very bitter, and probably for very good reason. But I was thrown into that lion's den, if you will, without any kind of introduction. I hadn't worked with them before. They didn't know personally of uh, my work ethic that helped me get that position, or of me personally. And again, they were bitter. Not at me, but I was kind of the point man in in them acting out their bitterness. And I won't tell you the whole struggle, but of the group, uh, this line of donuts, it was comprised of women, which is not why they were bitter, by the way. And then there was one man, and he was huge. He was big. We'll get to him in just a second. But that does make a difference as we come. So the circumstances were, I'm in a new place, doing a supervisory role, a leadership role, with a group of people who didn't particularly want to be led by me. And because it was comprised of a group of women, and to be fair, there was one woman there who was on my side, or at least by her nature, she was not carrying the bitterness of the rest. Her name was Gertrude. Shout out to Gertrude if you're ever out there. 
but the rest were very prickly. And as a result of my upbringing, I found in my frustration that I concentrated my efforts to correct things to the man who was in the group. He was a great, big, huge man. He was maybe a foot and a half, maybe even closer to two feet taller than I was, very broad and wide and strong, and he had a continual scowl on his face as well. He was married to one of the women, and there was a dynamic there that was going on that was unwholesome to anybody, not between just them, but between that group, that group of people and the company I worked for. But he was the man. And because, like I said, of my upbringing, I didn't focus on like chewing out the ladies who, who were there. I actually focused on him. He became the focus of my uh, ire with the group because I couldn't very well yell at these ladies. Now, because of those dynamics, I had a contentious relationship with them and a particularly contentious relationship with him, the enemy. In fact, that's what I began to call him. And every day, and I won't tell you the whole circumstances, it doesn't matter, but every day was a hassle. Every day was a burden. And going in before work, before I clocked in, before I punched that time card, I prayed that God would give me victory over the enemy. And I prayed some somehow that I would win, that I would win a sweeping victory and be able to sweep all this aside and then become the supervisor that I thought I was supposed to be. That I would somehow, in word or deed, be able to accomplish the vanquishing of the enemy. And every day I prayed, and every day I prayed I wouldn't have, trou have trouble, and every day I had trouble. That's the struggle. So I have the circumstances at the bakery. The enemy was the enemy. He was this guy. And we struggled. We wrestled, if you will, verbally every single day and with attitudes as well. And one day before Christmas, the culmination of this struggle, it was just before Christmas this, that this happened. But the struggle became more intense at the first of the year, the first of 1984. Someone took a sharp knife and slashed my tires, the tires of my car, while we were working in, and my car was in the parking lot. And so then I had this thing, this struggle, this, this trial, and I was pretty sure who I knew slashed my tires. There was no proof, there was no video, anything like that, but I was pretty sure just because of our relationship who did that, and I wasn't sure what to do about it. So in those circumstances, against the enemy, in the midst of my struggle, one day, as we were working early in 1984, the group of them, the group of ladies, were standing around looking at something, and they called me over, which was first highly unusual. We didn't have a whole lot of relationship or a whole lot of any kind of civil discussion at all. They barely talked to me, their leader, but they called me over. And they were looking at holiday pictures. And it happened to be the wife of my enemy. It was her pictures. And they were going through. In the olden days, it wasn't a phone that we went through, but we went through physical photographs. And as she was thumbing through the photographs, and I do not exaggerate this at all, I was stunned, completely stunned. I stopped and I looked at this photograph. And it was a photograph of the enemy 
and he had in between his legs what had to be his granddaughter. And he was holding her up like, you know, walking in between adult legs. And he had his fingers out. She was holding on to his fingers and she was looking up at him with the most devoted look in her eyes and in her face and great smile on her face. And he was looking up at the camera with, the only way I can describe it is the most grandfatherly look I have ever seen. Just the joy that was there. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'm not even kidding. I gave her the picture back and I staggered. I didn't know if I would make it. I staggered back to my desk. It was a standing desk. And I staggered back there to get my balance. And I was trying to comprehend my enemy, my hated enemy, having such a grandfatherly look on his face. And it was near unbelievable. And I wouldn't have believed it if I didn't see the picture. And I stood there weak, shaking. And I'm not kidding. At the look on that man's face and the look on that young girl's face. And as I stood there, the verses came to mind. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Luke says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do good to them in Luke 6.26. The full passage from Matthew 5.44-47 reads this way, and I know you know it, you've heard it, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That was the real struggle. I had been praying for victory and fighting the enemy the world's way. Verse 45 is the most impactful. Why do we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? It's in order that we may be the sons of our Father. That's His nature. We're supposed to conform to Him to His nature. We've talked about that before. And that's what He does. He loves even those who hate Him. And that, of course, in His in his common grace, as theologians called it. But he does cause the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He gives each of us rain. He gives each of us a measure of joy in this life and peace as well. That's his nature, and that's what we are supposed to reflect. And all this time, all these weeks, I had been desiring to defeat the enemy when I should have been loving him loving them all. I have to tell you real quickly, I think it was about, it must have been in February, Valentine's Day, and I decided to give them a gift. This was after I started, stopped praying for victory over him, but started praying for his soul and their soul and being kind to them at work instead of looking for confrontation. And I bought them all a gift at in February for Valentine's Day because I hadn't given them anything for Christmas. 
Of course, they hadn't given me anything for Christmas either, but that's not the point, is it, as a Christian? And I do have to admit, I bought my enemy a really nice knife because he always carried around a knife. And he looked at that knife and he gave me a look and he said, what in the world is this? Something along those lines. And I said, you know what? I noticed you carry a knife in your sheaf all the time. I thought that would be a good gift for you. And that was the beginning or in the midst of my turning from them or turning to pray for them and to do good for them. And it doesn't always work this way, but we began to have a better and better working relationship. And in the months to come, as you will see, if I remember to mention it, they became some of, when I needed them most, they became some of my closest closest allies during what we will call the fall or the aftermath of the fall. And you may be asking, so what? Sometimes I hope that's evident, <laughs> but it isn't always. God is serious about his word. That's the so what. He's serious about our duty. And we talked about this before, our duty, the glory and the excellency of it. Our duty is to love our enemies and do good for them and pray for them because he said so. The glory of it is his glory is seen when we do that when we are merciful as he is merciful, and the excellency of our lives, because guess what happened after that? My days got better, and I stopped desperately praying at the time clock for things to be different, because even though it took a while for things to be different, I was different after that. What I was essentially praying for is peace and a better working work environment. How I expressed it was asking for power or cleverness or some other method of vanquishing this enemy. And what God showed me that night was my enemy was a loving grandfather who had grandchildren, at least one, who loved him. And God taught me in the moment how serious he is about his word and loving our enemies. Obedience i.e. praying for our enemies, brings that peace and joy that we really long for. And what we have first to give from saints, even in our struggles and even in our sorrows, remember my question at the beginning, what do I have that the world doesn't have? What do I have that the world doesn't have? I have access to the paramount way of dealing with people, God's way, with love and forgiveness and doing good for them. The natural extension of our salvation is our conforming to his nature. We have hope in him. We have relief, not only through the answers, through different answers to our prayers that we might be asking, but more importantly, because through prayer and his leading, we learn his way, and it's the best way. And it builds our faith. What a glorious thing as I looked to God then in his mercies and in the truth of his word and how doing or making the effort to live like he wants us to live matures or perfects our lives. And all of that was a very early lesson. And when it came time for God to show me this lesson from Paul, we've talked about this before. We find it in Second Timothy 
112. Learning to know God's way is best and his character is best, what he wants from us, is again paramount in our lives. Paul was able to say, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. In that moment, late at night, looking at that picture that I could never have imagined, I learned a little bit more about God who says, love those who persecute you. You have enemies. You will have enemies. They hated me. They'll hate you. But this is how you deal with them. You pray for them. You do good for them. Because that's what I am doing. Final judgment is up to him, isn't it? Their eternity is up to him. In the moment, our relationship with them is also up to him, which is, even though they may be a thorn in your side or a pain in your neck, love them and pray for them. My beloved brethren, when you read God's word, take it seriously. When you pray, pray from your heart. I was praying from my heart, but unlike the last time, and he, he answered exactly what I asked for, he answered this prayer, but it was with a huge twist that I never could have imagined. We need to entrust ourselves to him in obedience to his word, in faithfulness to prayer, knowing that we are going to understand him more and more as our lives go on. That's the so what. We've talked before about prayer, our ultimate goal, glorifying him, and our chief goal, conforming to his word, then, then our other chief goal, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That's eternal life. And that's where the joy springs from. Brethren, let's entrust ourselves to him in obedience, into prayer, expecting he is going to answer in ways that will show us our duty, reflect his glory and then makes make our lives excellent in the truest sense. Thank you, Jesus, for today. I thank you and bless you for your mercies to us and your grace and your peace, Lord Jesus, and all that I do not understand. We bow before you simply to say, teach us to pray, teach us our duty, teach us to draw close to you and to get our satisfaction and our peace and our joy, not from victory over our enemies but for displaying your love and your care to the world as you have loved and cared for us. Holy God, make us people of prayer, make us people of love, and make us people who entrust everything to thee and thy working. Thank you, Jesus, for answered prayer. We commit this time to you. Do thy will through this faltering testimony. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Brethren, we are commended to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, that we would give him honor and glory forever. Let's pray for one another. As always, thank you for listening. We look forward to hearing from you at www.frponprayer.com or freerangeprayer at gmail.com. And for all your voiceover needs, go to richarddurrington.com or durringtonr at gmail.com. 
keep your dial here for our next episode. And if you have a dial, you just might need an upgrade. For Fred and I, have yourself a prayerfully fun-filled day.